in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 16, For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Pause right there. The reason why I call this sermon Everything the Light Touches some of you may recognize that image. It's the opening scene from The Lion King. I don't even know how to do it, so you guys are like, please, you've sang enough. Don't do any more. When I was five years old, actually, on this very week, The Lion King debuted 24 years ago. So I guess I was six. When I was six years old, this very week, The Lion King debuted in theaters. It was a very special moment in my life. The reason why it was a very special moment in my life was I was not allowed to go to the theater. The reason why I was not allowed to go to the theater is, as you know, the theater is a very sinful place. <laughs> Sorry. At the time, my grandmother in Pentecostalism had just left the 70s, like the, the uh, uh, it was called the auteur period, so like directors were putting whatever they wanted in the movie, and like there was no rating system, so like... He just kind of showed up and who knows what was going to be in the movie and it was really designed for adults and uh, the whole experience was just kind of poo-pooed by our denomination. So my dad, as a good son to his mother, decided that we were not allowed to go to the movies and we never did. But we were staying at my aunt's place and there was rumors of going to see The Lion King. And I had always heard of the theater, but it was like this, it was the closest thing in the world to like a pagan temple, you know what I mean? Like we saw these buildings, we would drive by and with like foreboding I would watch, you know, this marquee and the lights and I was like, wow, I wonder what goes on there, like this, this den of sin, right? So the rumor was that we were all going to go to this movie and so, was it Airdrie or Olds? High River. It was one of the small towns that was not Okotoks. We drove, it felt like forever to get to this movie. And when we got there, we found out that the theater was oversold. So it's the debut of the movie, the theater is oversold, which means that Caitlin has to sit on mom's knee, and I have to sit on, I'm sorry, Caitlin has to sit on auntie's knee, and I sit on mom's knee for the whole movie. And it turns out that it was like the perfect first theater experience for a young, impressionable mind. Because the moment that it opens with the sunrise, and then this child is dedicated, do you remember this in the movie? Okay. Hopefully I'm not spoiling a 24-year-old movie. It's been around for a quarter of a century. If you're upset that I've ruined The Lion King, we can talk afterwards, okay? But from the moment of that opening score and all the animals bowing down, and I'm sitting on my mom's knee, and I'm feeling like just how crowded this small theater is, but it felt so huge because I'm six and every seat is full, filled, and it felt like we were having this one common experience together. Roger Ebert describes the movies as an empathy machine. You look at a screen and you watch 
someone else's experience, in this case, a young lion, (laughs) and you relate to them, but you do it in the company of other people, and then when you leave the theater, you feel like you know one another. Have you ever noticed that? You leave the movie theater and you're like, I feel like we've been through through something together, even though you're a stranger to me. It's because the movies are an empathy machine, and it was a profound moment in my life to see something that moved so many people so much. Of course, I then went home and repented and fasted for a week. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I did, however, say when we got into the car, because one of the concerns was if we go to the movies, and again, in the 70s, this might have been true, but one of the concerns that I was told was if we go to the movie and we buy a ticket, that ticket gives them money to make a different movie that might not be good and might not glorify God. So even if you go see a good movie, you might be uh, empowering an evil movie, right? So I had gone to the the theater manager as a six-year-old after the movie was done, and I asked him what movie was playing next. What movie was playing next? Angels in the Outfield. So I get in the car and I said, Mom, good news. Guess what? The manager says that a movie about angels is playing next, so our money isn't going towards, you know, evil. And my aunt is like, oh, brother. So that was my first experience at the movies. But the, the scene that stood out the most for me in that movie as a kid was the scene where Simba, the, the baby lion who's been dedicated, he goes up on Pride Rock with his father, Mufasa, and Mufasa says to him, son, everything the light touches is yours. Everything the light touches is yours. And I think about that moment in the story a lot, even when I read this passage in John 1, because something is happening here that feels very complex and very conceptual, but it's actually incredibly simple. It's incredibly simple because even though we think of these things as abstract, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was the light in the beginning. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. All these things, light, Word, grace, truth, Father, Son, they feel really complicated until you realize that everything that's talked about in John 1 is really the glory and the light being revealed of a father's relationship with the son. And you know the true story. The tr- you know the truth of the gospel from the pattern that's revealed in creation when you see how a father loves a son. When you see how a good father loves a daughter. Now, I know that talking about a message on fathering on Father's Day can be painful for some people because some of you have lost your father. Some of you uh, did not have a good father. But the meditation on fathering is still so important because we uniquely claim that God is our father. As I've said now for a third time this morning, Ephesians says that he is the father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Your truest father is your heavenly father. You belong to someone more than you belong to your biological parents. And he's your heavenly father. And he is the one who loves you, who knows you, and he is the place of your truest origin. Some people have taken the... Scriptures about adoption in Romans, out of context, they've applied a modern adoptive context to it, and they make it out to be that you are only 
God is only your father once you accept Jesus. But that isn't the case. <laughs> because Satan doesn't have kids. The light that reveals the life of the world and the life in the world is that Jesus reveals God is our Father. And there are impediments in the way to enjoying our place of belonging in family. But Jesus dealt with those. And the Roman context of adoption was less about taking someone who is not from your family and putting them in your family. And it was more about endorsing and publicly proclaiming that your child was now your given son. Your father... Your heavenly father knows you, loves you, and you belong to him. And so regardless of whether or not you have your dad or whether you had a good dad, when we're talking about fathering, I want to be sensitive to you, but I want you to understand that this applies on many different levels. But the reason why we know it's true, the reason why we know John 1 is true, is every relationship, every good relationship where a father relates to a son reveals the glory hidden from the beginning of creation. The ultimate glory of God is revealed in how a father relates to a son. So my second theater experience, which is like over a year later, right? Because we went once, but like our conscience is still very sensitive. My second theater experience was we were in Victoria and we were staying at my Uncle Rick's house. And it was late. And mom's, this is how I remember it. You guys might remember it differently. I realize that as I tell stories from my past, I have other people who were there who were like, eh, it didn't quite happen like that. I was like, I was six. I'm trying my best to remember this accurately. But I remember being at the kitchen table, and I remember mom saying something about how I should go to bed. I think it was like 9 o'clock, which was late for us. And my dad is looking at the newspaper, this is crazy. Back then, in order to find out what movies were playing and what times they were playing at, you had to open this thing called a newspaper. It had like printing on it. It's really strange. Some people use it for like their kitty litter box or like to start a fire. Anyway, he opens up this newspaper and he points at something to my mom and I have no idea what he's doing. And he's like, do you think we could? And mom kind of shrugs and goes, I guess if that's what you want to do, for sure you can go. And dad goes, I'm going to take you to see a movie. And I was like, awesome. <laughs> Past my bedtime, like, I get to stay up now? And so I remember us driving and then getting out and having to run to catch this movie, which turns out was the re-release of Star Wars A New Hope. Episode whatever. I forget, I forget which one it was. The first one with Luke Skywalker, okay? And like, nerds had showed up in droves. People were wearing costumes. I'd never seen anything like this before. And then again, I'm sitting in this theater and it's packed and the movie opens and suddenly there's this huge spaceship and then there's this dude wearing this like black samurai thing and he's talking like this. And it turns out, crazy enough, that the voice of Mufasa from The Lion King and the voice of Darth Vader are the same dude. The two most famous fathers in movie history are the same guy. And most of you, when you think of the voice of God booming down from heaven, you're thinking of James Earl Jones talking to you. That's who you're thinking of. 
But I remember being in this movie, and I remember being overwhelmed by it, and I remember, I remember noticing something very small, which was that my dad was just as excited to watch me watch the movie as he was to see the movie himself. You see, it's these little moments in relationship that reveal God's truest nature. And they testify the truth of our heavenly home and the truth of our heavenly family better than any words ever could. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This passage is saying that God is both the expresser of something, and He is the expression. God is the person speaking. He's the thing He says. The very words that He says is also Him. And the means of communicating is all God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the one speaking, He is the thing being said, and he is the means of expression. When Jesus is revealed to be the word, what John is saying is that God could not express himself through text. The only way he could fully express himself was through a human life and a human relationship. So you'll never adequately be able to comprehend the gospel by words alone. You need embodiment. You need incarnation. You need God with skin on in order for this to make sense. And not only do you need God with skin on, but you need an embodiment that relates to God and to other people. So so the word is God, and the word is preexistent with God, but the word is expressed. He's expressed as light in darkness. God assumes the human condition permanently forever, and then he reveals the highest glory. The highest glory is not smoke. It's not fire on a mountain. The highest glory is not the Torah of Moses. These all have a measure of glory, but the highest glory is a person, a human being, relating to God in a way we can understand. And as we watch his relationship with his father unfold, we see the true nature of our father, and we understand who he really is. Maybe a, uh, a story would help here. It's a story I've told uh, many times before. It's a, a story from uh, Baxter Kruger. He talks about how one time he was in a study, and he was working on something, and his son came in, and his son had a friend with him, and immediately his son comes in and starts playhousing with him and wrestling with him, right? And they're playhousing and they're wrestling, and his friend is just standing there, right, as you would. He doesn't know, he knows his son's friend's name, but he doesn't really know him that well. And Baxter Kruger says, within 20 minutes, the two of them are up on my couch in my office, leaping off at me, and I'm grabbing them, and I'm throwing them down, and I'm tickling them, and then his son's friend jumps off the couch, and he grabs them, and he throws them down, and he's tickling them, and the three of them are playing together. And then they stop, and they run off to go get a snack, and he hears the voice of God say, wouldn't it be weird if you did that to your son's friend all by himself? 
How come your son's friend was so comfortable roughhousing and playing with you? It's because the son was a mediator that revealed the nature of his father. So his friend comes into the room with him and doesn't know how to relate to his friend's dad. But the moment they begin roughhousing, there's a sense of permission, and the son reveals the nature of the relationship, and the friend feels safe to play. Now, the difference here is that you are not a friend of the family. Jesus reveals you are part of the family. You have always been part of the family. Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, the first apostle, go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Which means that to Jesus, the work of Christ brings you as much into the family as Jesus is. Jesus believes you belong to the family as much as he does. So whenever we see a father loving a son and a son loving and trusting a father, we see a little glimpse of eternity. Because that love and that belonging that's being expressed reveals the true nature of our Heavenly Father, God. When I was 11, I got to play in a soccer tournament in BC Place. It felt like I had arrived. It felt like I was only months away from the World Cup. It was such validation to me. I thought that the stadium was going to be full, which was not exactly true. And I thought that we were playing on the whole field, which doesn't really make sense because if you've seen the size of a soccer field, you don't send you know, seven on seven 11 year olds out on a field that big in a stadium that huge, right? You can fit half of Saskatoon in BC Place. So it's like, it's, it was a little big, but it was so overwhelming to come out from this concrete canopy and come out onto this field, right? And like, even though there wasn't like scores of people going, it felt like that in my, in my spirit, right? So we go out and we play this tournament and the field is made with artificial turf. So it's not like the new artificial turf. <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like the grass that was at Brad and Cheryl Redekop's house. I don't know if you guys have ever been to their place, but it's like, it, you're like, is this real grass? I'm not sure. No, you know this isn't real grass. This is like, this is like barely even the right color of green, right? It's like, it's kind of neon. And you go and you, the first time I slid on it, I, f I regretted it like so much. My whole leg just opened up. And it's crazy, when you slide on artificial turf, it doesn't cut you right away, it just burns, and then all your pores start bleeding. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this is not what I signed up for. I got up, I tried to get back in the game, but I just felt out of it. I was still overwhelmed by the stadium. We lost that very first game, and we were like already out. It was like over and done before it had even begun. And I was disappointed because I thought that this was the beginning of my dream to become a professional soccer player. Which, by the way, if it would have come true, I would be in Russia right now. So you're welcome for being here with you. Obviously, if I would have played on Team Canada, we would have gone from way down here to way up here. I joke with my soccer friends in Europe. I say, 
Canada is bad enough that we are actually slightly better than one war-torn country and slightly worse than another war-torn country. I'm really grateful that we got the World Cup in 2026 because otherwise we just probably wouldn't qualify ever. But after we played the game, I really wanted to assert myself and I really wanted to prove myself as a player. And I had two teammates named Brooke and Kyle. They were the superstars of our league and they were the ones that everyone was really trusting would take us to the next level. And when we were heading to our locker, it's of course somewhere in the catwalk of this sprawling stadium. So a parent was allowed to accompany their child. So I'm walking with dad and Brooke and Kyle are walking with their dad. And their dad is, uh, their mom raises them as a single mom and they get visitation sometimes, occasionally. And he's talking to them and I'm listening to them talk to him and, and, or him talk to them and he's saying, oh man, Brooke, you, you really messed up on that play back there. And, and Kyle, man, why weren't you in the game? You gotta hustle more. And we're walking together and in my head I'm thinking, I bet you they're gonna make it because their dad really pushes them to play harder. And dad looks over at me and he sees that I'm a little bit like upset. He's like, how you doing, bud? Like, you, you played good, are you upset? And I said, I am like holding back tears, right? Because, you know, <laughs> all kids playing sports who lose are holding back tears, just so you know. <laughs> There's like a couple kids who've like blunted that nerve ending and they're just like, I don't care, whatever. But like there are at least three kids on every team when they lose who are like holding back tears, right? That's most of the time where boys are trying not to cry. They don't care about your sappy movies, but when they lose a game they care about, they're like, it doesn't matter, I'm fine. <laughs> and then I said, Dad, I just wish you'd push me a little bit harder. And we're walking close enough to them in this concrete tube that we can hear everything he's saying to his sons as he's berating them and putting pressure on them. And of course, dad had said, the moment I came off the field, hey, I'm so proud of you, you did so good. And then I remember dad saying, is that what you'd like? Would you like me to be more like him? He said, I don't want to be more like him. I want you, I want you to know that I'm proud of you no matter what you do. See, because I always felt like the kid in Lion King. I always felt like the kid who had everything the light touches. As much as it belonged to dad, it belonged to me. And I, I strangely felt like if I only had a harsher father, maybe <laughs> I would make it. And he's like, you did so good. I'm so proud of you. Like, you played so hard. And yeah, they were a good team, but you guys were better. It was just an accident that you lost. Like, he did the whole thing that, you know, dads do. And I remember thinking as we continued walking, oh, dad, you just don't get it. <laughs> and now I realize I, I was the one who, who, didn't, who didn't get it, who didn't understand. You see, in life, you have the privilege of walking with your earthly father, your biological father, someone caused you to be alive. We won't go into how that happened. It's really awkward to think about when it's your parents. So you have an, earth, you have an earthly father, and the, the, the number one thing you need from an earthly father is you need protection and provision. Hopefully those were there for you. But an earthly father, like your, your bare minimum for your body and for your relationships to happen in space, as you grow from baby to now, hopefully you have a father who 
protected you and provided for you until you could protect and provide for yourself. That's what physical fathers are there for. Then you have surrogate fathers. Surrogate fathers are there to provide emotional support and stability and to speak identity and truth to you. So a surrogate father is someone who might step in because that emotional need is lacking in a physical father's relationship. Someone who speaks identity and who affirms who you are and who expresses, I love you and I'm proud of you. And that was the transition I was almost missing when I left the soccer field that day. Because I I wanted a more dysfunctional father, not realizing that in my life, I would go much further being loved and known and celebrated than I would having someone who put pressure on me and who who, who, uh, put their expectations on me and who made me feel like I was insufficient. Now, the crazy thing about that is, and I don't, want to, I don't want to play an apologist here, but in Colossians, Paul says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. The reason why that's so important, and I think about it all the time, is because I'm a father, I'm an expresser, right? Remember we said that the father's nature is to be the one expressing something? I think of my kids as the height of my expression, So I want them to be the very best they can be. And I want to give them the very best opportunity to be the very best they can be. But unfortunately, if I'm not careful, I can begin to put pressure on them and I can begin to exasperate them because my expectations are higher than the sense of belonging they feel from me. And I I feel like many people don't realize that the reason why maybe their fathering is falling short, or maybe you look at your relationship with your dad and you're like, man, it just didn't, it just didn't measure up. I don't feel like I was set up for success. It was actually because they were trying to love you by putting pressure on you, and they didn't realize that they were exasperating their children. I used to think that Jesus was ripped off from only hearing from the father twice. Did you notice that? Jesus goes and prays, and we presume that he had conversation with his father, but he only hears the voice of his heavenly father twice. And on both occasions, the father says basically the same thing. This is my beloved son. Doesn't the father have more to say? See, some of us struggle with hearing the voice of our heavenly father because we're expecting him to say something he will not say. We listen and we hope that he will say something like what Brooke and Kyle's parents said. You know, you really could try harder. You're really not measuring up. Man, you're slacking off. And instead he says, I love you. I'm proud of you. I believe in you. And we go, no, 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 I don't want to hear that. (laughs) That's not the right message. But again, we see the glory of God, the highest glory of God revealed in the way the Father loves and knows the Son and the way the Son loves and relates to the Father. And the only thing our Heavenly Father said to His only begotten Son was, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And you may say to yourself, well, He only said that because He's Jesus. (laughs) If the heavens opened over me, God would be like, come on, kid, get your act together. But Jesus reveals the one true face of God. There is no other God the Father up there for you to be in relationship with. The same God who loves and believes in Jesus is the God who loves and believes in you. (laughs) So this leads me to my my final uh, thing, which is you have physical fathers to look after your physical needs, 
Hopefully you have a father who relates to your emotional needs and speaks identity and affirmation over you. And if you don't, then hopefully you're walking with surrogate fathers. But then finally, you also have the opportunity to watch, walk with spiritual fathers. And spiritual fathers, the reason why we relate to spiritual fathers is purely so that they can reveal the love of our Heavenly Father to you. That's it. That's why you have a spiritual father. They're not a mentor. They're not a teacher. That may be part of it. But the reason why you walk with and you relate to a spiritual father is so that they can embody and reveal the love of your Heavenly Father to you. And so what we see in Jesus is we see that he reveals not only how the Father loves him and treats him, but then, according to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the prophet says, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting God, Almighty... No, I'm quoting the wrong verse here. I'm sorry. <laughs> is that the right verse? Everlasting Father. That's why I messed it up. The prophecy about Jesus calls Jesus an everlasting Father. Isn't that weird? But you have to think about it this way. Jesus is the Word. He's the fullest expression of God. There's nothing else to say about God that isn't revealed in Jesus. And Jesus shows his disciples, he shows everyone, but primarily his disciples, the face of the Father. He relates to them as a father, and then they relate as a father to others. And this is the pattern of spiritual family that transcends natural family and reveals to the world the nature of our Heavenly Father. So can I give you some examples from Scripture of how this works? Really quickly. Peter, James, and John are the closest ones to Jesus. And they all have such an interesting relationship with him, especially Peter and John. Jesus is walking with his mother, Mary, sweet mother Mary. And she says to him, it's time, I need you to make wine at this wedding. He goes, mother, my time has not yet come. But he obeys her and he submits to her. And from submitting to her, life is expressed, right? Then just a few chapters later, he's preaching and teaching and making some people uncomfortable. And his brothers and his mother come to him and say, we want to speak with you. Please leave your teaching right now and come and speak with us. We want to bring some correction to you. And Jesus says, these are my mother and my brothers, the ones who hear the will of God and do it. So Jesus is introducing this idea that spiritual family transcends natural family. But it starts where natural family left off. He calls two brothers, right? James and John, sons of thunder. These guys are wild and radical people. When in Luke 9, a Samaritan village rejects Jesus, John the beloved, like sweet disciple John, John the one who wrote, love one another. He says, should we call down fire on these people to destroy them? Why is he doing that? Because he's fiercely loyal to Jesus. He loves Jesus, and he doesn't want Jesus to be rejected. And what does Jesus say? You do not know what spirit you are of. Remember, the Father is the expresser, the Son is the expression, and the Spirit is the means of expressing. So Jesus is saying to John, you're trying to be a son. You're trying to be my fullest expression, but you're not hearing the Spirit. Because the spirit I'm carrying is not the spirit of murdering cities. Like, not at all. 
Like, if you just take a left turn on YouTube, you'll find another pastor who wants to tell you that, that Jesus is getting out of the mercy business and he's going back to the judgment business and just you wait, San Francisco's gonna burn, New York's gonna burn. Listen, if he said it, that it's not his spirit, then there will never be a time where his spirit changes. Jesus isn't going to excise the Holy Spirit and take up a different spirit. He only operates out of one spirit. He's only operating out of one expression. He didn't say, James and John, you don't know what season it is. He said, you do not know what spirit you are of. The Holy Spirit doesn't murder cities. Just want to lay that out there for you in case you're wondering, because there are really good people who I love and respect who think that I'm wrong in this. And I, I just have to assert it really clearly because some people, they call me or they send me videos and they're like, did you hear the latest prophecy? California's going to fall off into the ocean. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> I'm not saying that there's not a fault line there, but if something bad happens, it isn't the will of God. He doesn't send floods or earthquakes or firestorms. He calms the storm. Okay, so here's the crazy thing that happens in the story of John. So John thinks of himself as a son to Jesus, and he relates out of a different spirit, and then he begins to relate to Jesus differently, and when he's sent out again as a son, they come back and they say, I saw Satan fall like lightning. The word there means adversary, accuser. So the nature that was in John to want to destroy cities is now being cast down because John goes out to tell people about the love of God and he proves it by healing them. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, I'm so excited. I saw Satan fall like lightning, but be more happy, be more proud of the fact that your names are written in the book in heaven. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, you belong to your heavenly father. The thing that should excite you is not ministry success, not cultural transformation. The thing that should excite you is belonging. I used to think that John was being proud and puffed up by in his gospel calling himself the disciple that Jesus loved. And now I believe that John felt so loved that he thought of the love of Jesus as more important than his own name. Here's the height of John's apostolic calling. Are you ready for this? Remember, Jesus submits to Mary. Then Jesus has to tell Mary, hey, there's something higher than family. And then on the cross, as he's dying, there's only one of the 12 who's there. You see, all of them received the love of Jesus, but in his hour of need, only one loved him back with the same love in return. John the zealot, John the one who wanted to destroy cities, faces his fear and stands at the foot of his Lord dying. And in the middle of heaven and earth being reborn, Jesus presses pause on all that and he says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mom. In the middle of that, he gives Mary as a spiritual mother to John, and he entrusts John with the task of watching her for the rest of his life. Church tradition teaches that John's apostolic calling in Jerusalem was primarily to take care of Mary in her old age. And that he really didn't bishop churches until she died. Or in some traditions, she was taken up into heaven. And I don't want to knock that because, hey, if Moses got it, Mary deserved it. But the highest and best calling that John the Beloved had was, can you look after my mom? Yeah. 
Think of Peter. Peter leaves his physical father's nets. The nets are protection and provision, right? He lays those down. Why does he lay those down? Because Jesus comes and meets him in a boat and says, throw your nets on the other side. And Peter's like, look, Jesus, I'm a professional here. That's silly. That's stupid. Like the, the water on this side is like this far from the water on that side of the boat. Like there's really no difference. But he listens to the master and the, the catch is so big that other people have to come and help, which is a thing in and of itself. But I'll leave that for another time. What, is, what does Peter do the moment this happens? Peter falls to his knees and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. You see, the love of God brings up the rejection in Peter. He feels loved, he feels belonging, and immediately he wants to push himself away. Your journey with the spiritual father begins where your relationship with your natural father left off. Jesus says, from now on you're going to catch, you're going to be a fisher of men. I used to think that that meant that that Jesus was calling Peter to be an evangelist. He's not. I, I think it's true that we're called to be evangelists and fishmen. But what is, what is Jesus saying? What is Jesus revealing about the Father? Jesus is being a good father to Peter by saying, you know how you're good at fishing? You're already going to be good at what I have in store for you. You don't think you're qualified for what I'm doing? You think I need to depart from you because you're sinful? I'm here to tell you that the gift you have, the talent you have, you think it has nothing to do with my kingdom? I'm letting you know I'm going to give it divine purpose and significance. See, this is the heart of a father towards Peter. Peter thinks, I'm a failure, I'm sinful, this guy needs to get away from me. And Jesus, revealing the nature of the father, says, you're already qualified for what I've called you to. So then, of course, in the middle of Peter's story, Peter feels so confident that he knows that not only is he the Christ, but he's the son of the living God, that when Jesus says the son has to suffer and die, Peter says, never, Lord, I will forbid it. We know the story. Obviously, Jesus rebukes Peter. We don't have time to get into it. But in the rebuke, he says, you're going to deny me three times tonight. Peter thinks, never. Never will I deny you, Lord. Peter feels really confident because he's the guy that gets to carry the sword, right? (laughs) Twelve guys have one sword, and it's Peter that gets it, of course, right? I don't think they voted. I think he just took it. So Peter takes the one sword, and in the garden, he swings at a guard trying to arrest Jesus. He tries to take the life of the person who is coming after his spiritual father. And again, Peter doesn't know what spirit he's of. Jesus heals the man who's helping kill him. And that's the moment Peter realizes, I can't walk with this man anymore. Because he thinks to himself, I want to die a violent revolutionary death. I want to be a hero. I want to be a soccer star. I want to make something of myself. Peter's got ambition. Peter's got drive. Peter's got a sword on his hip. And he knows how to make something of himself. And here Jesus is healing the person who's going to kill him. Peter thinks, I can't walk with a father like that. Peter doesn't deny Jesus because he's afraid to die with Jesus. He denies Jesus because he thinks the love of Jesus is weak. Jesus is so, Jesus reveals that the father is so unwilling to control you that he would rather die 
then coerce you to his will. So Peter feels ashamed, feels embarrassed. The cock crows three times, as the King James says. What does he do? He goes back to fishing. And then again, like at the beginning, he sees someone who will change his life in the middle of his boat. <laughs> and the moment he realizes it's Jesus, he gets out of the boat and he runs to him. This time he doesn't walk on water. You remember the first time Peter stood at the edge of the boat and said, if it's you on the water, if it's you, I can do it. Because what's the nature of a good father? For the son to grow up and to go beyond everything the father is and has accomplished. That was the nature of this whole arrangement. Peter goes, if it's you out there, I know I can do it. All the other guys are scared. Peter's like, ha ha, leave it to me. He gets out there and he starts to sink, right? And we give Peter a lot of grief for that. But you got to remember the benefit was he got to walk back to the boat with Jesus, arm in arm. He had taken a risk and he had failed, yes, but he had still succeeded because he got to walk with the person revealing the Father to him. Now he had failed in a more concrete way. He had betrayed his master. And he gets a suspicion that the man on the shore is the resurrected Lord. He runs through the water and he gets to the shore and Jesus is cooking them breakfast. Soon after, Jesus takes Peter aside and he says, do you love me? And every time Peter is asked this question, Jesus is using the word, do you love, love me? And Peter responds, Lord, Lord, you know I love you, meaning like, you know, you know I'm your friend. Essentially is what, it, is what it could be translated as. Jesus says, do you love me? He says, oh, you, you know I'm a friend. See, Peter is so crushed by his own act of betrayal that he cannot even acknowledge that he loves Jesus. And three times Jesus asks, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. And on the third time, Jesus says it the same way. He says, do you, do you love me as a friend? Jesus comes and meets Peter where he's at. And, and Peter goes, yeah, you, you know I love you as a friend. And Jesus goes, well then, feed my lambs. He again affirms Peter's destiny. And then he says what I think is the most beautiful part of the story. He says, one day, men will tie your hands and lead you where you do not want to go. And the gospel says he was prophesying the death Peter was going to die. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, Peter, you wanted to die for a revolution? You get to die for a revolution. You get to lay down your life the way I laid down my life. You get to be just like me. <laughs> we all have different experiences with our fathers. But Paul calls us to have many... He says to the Corinthians, you have not many fathers, as though it would be expected that you would walk with many fathers, because no one person, your natural dad, your surrogate father, your spiritual fathers, nobody can fully reveal to you the nature of your heavenly father. Amen. But together... Many mothers and fathers do reveal the face of God to you. And here's what I want you to know this morning. What I want you to know is that you're loved, 
that you belong, and that the highest glory of God is this, that he relates to you as a dad. The thing that he's the proudest of is you. His very nature, his very name, Father, is only true because you exist to be a son, a daughter, because you are part of his family. And I want you to know that in the end, you do get to be like your dad. Whether you fail through betrayal, whether you try your best and you do something that's not in the same spirit as Jesus, you are on a journey to reveal the glory of God. And the glory of God is not just found in good teaching. It's not just found in good church services. The glory of God is found in the dynamic between the love of a father and the love of a son, between the love of a mother and the love of a daughter. It's found wherever family and belonging are present. And all of these relationships are imperfect, and some of them are so broken that we carry the pain around with us all the time. But I want you to know that if your dad was more like Mufasa or more like Darth Vader, it doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit has you on a journey to reveal the light and the glory of God through your relationships. And you could betray Jesus at the hour of his greatest need and he will still restore you. You can try to murder an entire city and Jesus will still empower you. You could be the worst possible candidate in the wrongest possible role. And God will still use you. But you have to open your heart up to the love of the Father. Because until you belong, and until you believe that you belong, and until you let the Lord love you through other people, let me say that again, until you let the Lord love you through other people, you will never experience the full glory of what it means to be a son, what it means to be a daughter. I want you to know you are never so broken that the Lord cannot use his relationship with you to change the world around you. The biggest, greatest thing about your life is not how successful you are or how much you've accomplished. It's the fact that you are loved and you get to love in return. That's it. The height of your life is not found in your accomplishments. It's found in your relationships. Is there a part of me that watches the World Cup and still thinks, man, I'd really like to be out on that field? Yeah, for sure. But you know what? From all the goals I scored and passes I made and, you know, for all of my quote-unquote accomplishments on the soccer field, I don't really remember any of them, <laughs> strangely. The one thing I remember is that every time I came out on the field, before I'd done anything, my parents would jump up in the stands and yell, that's my boy! And I'd be so embarrassed. <laughs> I'd want to go hide somewhere and die. And I thought the game was so important, and the game wasn't important at all. The only thing I remember is them jumping up and saying, that's my boy. You want to know why the only thing the Father ever said to Jesus was, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased? Because that's the most true thing in all of history. You are a child of God. He loves you. 
He believes in you and you belong to him. And even if that doesn't feel true or real to you, I promise you the Holy Spirit is leading you into relationships where you will know that it is.